Our speaker this morning is Mr. Frank Ginther, born and raised in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He entered the Navy in June of 1961. From January 1968 through December of that same year, for 11 months, he was held captive by the North Koreans as a prisoner of war. After his release, along with many others, he served until 1973. A year later, <clears throat> in 1974, he joined the Pennsylvania National Guard and served until April of 1986, holding the rank of Staff Sergeant. He retired with a total of 23 years military experience. Frank is the recipient of numerous awards and commendations, and in it all, Frank, God, Frank gives God the glory for sustaining him during unthinkably difficult times. Would you please join me in welcoming our speaker for this morning, Mr. Frank Ginther. Frank. Thank you, Pastor. I'd like to say greetings to our distinguished guests, my family, friends, fellow veterans, fellow countrymen, and women. Hardest part I ever have is putting together that. <laughs> the protocol of how to say greetings to everyone. I'm waiting for the day that I get invited to be a speaker down south where I just go in and say, greetings, y'all. <laughs> But in the meantime, it's uh, really an honor and a pleasure for me to be here today on this traditional Memorial Day service at Cedar Crest. I thought about what I could share, and uh, it's, there's so much. And today I basically thought back, and I did a little bit of looking and research about Memorial Day. What is it? When did it start? Originally it was called Decoration Day. It was first observed in May of 1968, May 30th, 1968, and it was definitely a day to honor all those who have lost their lives in service to our great nation. As a boy, we had to go to school on Memorial Day. We went to school and uh, we went to the classrooms and they took attendance. Then after that, we gathered out on the playground and we waited for the high school marching band to come down. The high school was further up the road, and they came down, and we joined in behind them. And we formed a big parade, and we all went to Center Square to the Veterans Memorial in downtown Pottsville. There they had the traditional Memorial Day service. You had uh, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Anthem, the reading of In Flanders Fields. Normally you had a musical tribute, 21-gun salute, and then taps. And then from there, we weren't finished yet, we were required to take flowers to the cemetery to put on the graves marked with flags. They were deceased veterans. Today many people feel that when Congress turned uh, the holiday into a three-day weekend with the National Holiday Act of 1971, it seemed to make it a lot easier for people to become distracted with the true meaning of Memorial Day. Today, uh, many cemeteries 
graves of falling, uh, fallen soldiers and veterans are being ignored. Many towns and cities, they still have parades, but many do not and have not for decades. Some day, or some people think it's a day for honoring all those who have died and not just those fallen in the service of our country. Memorial Day, we associate it with the Indy 500. It's the semi-official start of summer. Well, to that I say yay. (laughs) Swimming pools are going to open today for the season. Amusement parks. There's festivals and events all across the nation with oftentimes no mention at all of those who have sacrificed their lives for our country. There's going to be super blockbuster, all kinds of sales today. You're going to be able to buy mattresses. You're going to be able to buy cars. You're going to be able to buy just about anything that you want, everything imaginable. However, I really and truly have always been fond of Memorial Day for what it really stood for. I appreciate the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. I know that these freedoms came at a price. Military people fighting and dying for our country that we could be free. You know, it's really amazing. We oftentimes don't realize how valuable or how important something is until we lost it. Do you ever have a piece of jewelry that belonged to maybe your grandmother, your grandfather? It was way back generations in the family, and you can't find it? Oh, i got to find that. It's, it's such a valuable piece of jewelry. You lost it. And then when you find it again, oh, great, what a relief. This didn't come very clear to me until 1968. It was at that time that I was serving on the USS Pueblo, when the ship was captured by the North Koreans. We were held prisoner for 11 months. It was on that day that I lost my freedom. I didn't know how valuable it was until I lost it. Prior to that, I was very excited to join the Navy immediately after graduation from Pottsville High School. I was fulfilling a dream that I had as a child. As everybody, I went to basic training. I received my training in Great Lakes, Illinois. From there, I went to a communication school in Florida and received orders to California. California, I came back east to Fort Meade and went through some schooling. And then I went on to my ultimate assignment or another assignment over in Morocco. In the meantime, I had gotten married, so my wife was able to go with me, and we had a newborn baby. We were able to take her along, so I was over in the northwest corner of Africa. It was quite interesting, fun. But while I was there, I expected to be there at least two years, and my tour was cut short because I had received orders to go to the USS Pueblo. We had to travel halfway around the world from Africa all the way over to Puget Sound Naval Shipyard in Bremerton, Washington. And there we were to board the USS Pueblo. 
Well, it was still being re-outfitted from a cargo ship. It was built for the United States Army back in the 1940s, and the Navy acquired it in the 60s and decided they wanted to use it to make it into an intelligence collection ship. Since I was one of the 30 uh, communications specialists assigned to the crew, uh, they needed us to go aboard the Pueblo and operate the electronic equipment. We had a crew of 83, and uh, we went through some undergoing or re-outfitting, and then it was commissioned. The overhaul was finished. It was ready to go to work. So we left in October of 1967 from San Diego and made our way across the Pacific, ultimately to our home port of Yokosuka, Japan. Our first mission, our very first mission, was off the coast of North Korea, where we were to go gather intelligence. Intelligence was anything that you could learn about the enemy, where all the coastal radars were, where the uh, ports were that you could see different types of ships entering and leaving a port, be it commercial, fishing, military, whatever. We had two civilians on board that were oceanographers that studied the temperature of the water. They studied the salt content. They studied the tides. They studied everything. It was all intelligence, and that was our job. But our job was to go off the coast, gather whatever we could for as long as we were in that area, and then to head back, operating until we were detected under complete radio silence. On January the 22nd, 1968, two fishing boats came within a few yards of us, took pictures of us, circled us, and left. Well, it was pretty obvious we were detected. We started establishing communications with our bases in Japan, and on January the 23rd, the next day, we finally broke through. It was in January. It was very cold. It was a very tough area, and we finally established communications. It was shortly after lunch, the two ships uh, came close by us. There were PT boats. The lookouts reported them coming at a high rate of speed, and they got close off of uh, off the ship, and uh, they, they circled us for a while, and finally, through international flag hoist, they were talking back and forth, raising flags saying, heave to, or we will open fire. We raised our flags and said, we are in international waters, we are oceanographic, we will be departing the area, thank you. And we started leaving. Well, I didn't realize it. This is the first time I'd been aboard a, a ship ever, a Navy ship, and the nautical terms weren't quite part of my regular vocabulary. I thought, heave to, that means go away. That's probably a good idea. It's getting a little tense out here. Heave to means stay put. <laughs> we started leaving, and uh, things were getting very, very tense. Before too long, there was four, T four PT boats and two subchasers alongside of us. And I never saw this, but I understand there were two MiGs flying around over top of us. It was turning into a very tense situation very quickly when finally they started firing at us and told us to stop. The captain took a quick tour. We were starting now by now to destroy our equipment. We were trying to destroy the massive volume of documents that we had on board. 
We were trying to destroy them in any way, ripping them up in little pieces. We couldn't burn them in the incinerator. That was up on the upper deck, and that was exposed. We got a few bags thrown overboard, weighted bags that we could put our classified papers in and threw them overboard, but only a few. The man that was doing that was wounded. Finally, they started opening fire with not only the machine guns, but they also opened fire with cannons. One of our crew members was out in the passageway destroying classified papers that were in the officer's wardroom. He was standing in the hallway burning this paperwork in garbage can, in a garbage can. When one of the shells from the cannons came through the ship and exploded right where he was, literally destroyed him from the waist down. Dwayne Hodges was our only casualty that day, although we did have dozens wounded. On that day, the crew of the USS Pueblo lost something very valuable, our freedom. As one of the communications specialists, I had access to classified information that I could not share with anyone. My wife, she uh, knew better to ask me what I did. How was work today? I couldn't tell her. And she was the person that I trusted more than anybody in the whole world. She learned quickly not to ask. But here we were and uh, in the hands of North Koreans. A lot of things going through your mind. At first we were interrogated, but it was just interroga interrogations of little or no significance, just asking questions about us. But as the days proceeded, they found out that they had a pretty valuable prize. They had a ship, as most people would call it, a spy ship. The government called it an intelligence collection ship, so that's what I call it. I stay on the safe side. Finally, they discovered that they had our personnel jackets, the jackets that go along with you to tell everything that the Navy knows about you. They could not be destroyed because of the time and the volume of other things that had to be destroyed first. So basically, the North Koreans knew everything about us just as much as the Navy did. Finally, there was interrogations that were a little bit more intense. They constantly told us that we were spies, that we should be taken to the hill and shot. That was a daily threat. But the thing that was really tough about the whole situation was the day that our ship was captured, we were in international waters. We had never, ever, at any time, gone into their territorial waters. We knew that. The United States knew that. It was confirmed many, many ways. But yet, here we were. We were seized by the North Koreans. And they were saying that you intruded into our territorial waters. It's not true. But they had to validate their claims. So they began very intense interrogations to gain confessions from the crew. They had to force us to confirm that we were indeed in their territorial waters. We knew the truth, and we were unwillingly to openly confess to a pack of lies. However, it soon became obvious that they would stop at nothing to gain the information that they wanted. 
Severe beatings became very commonplace. They threatened to shoot us, and some held guns to the heads of our crew members and pulled the trigger only to produce a deafening click, claiming that the gun misfired, and then saying, oh, you're not worth the bullet. I will say that uh, everybody on the crew, I honestly believe, resisted to the best of their abilities. But ultimately, every crew member signed a confession. I was taken to a room, and I was made sit into a chair in front of a desk, and behind the desk there were three Korean officers, and off to the side there was an interpreter. Behind me, between me and the only door in and out, was a guard that had a machine gun that was fully loaded. He made that obvious. I was told to sit in a wooden chair, and they began asking me questions. Many of them made no sense. They asked who were the CIA agents on board. We had none. Why would our government allow these acts to be perpetrated against such a peace-loving nation as North Korea? The only thing that they wanted to do was reunite with their families and loved ones in the South. It was a tough situation. As I said earlier, the only person that I trusted in this earth more than anybody was my wife, and I couldn't tell her what I was doing. Here I am sitting in front of a handful of North Koreans. I certainly couldn't tell them what I was doing. It didn't take long to realize that I wasn't giving the right answers. They became very angry, and uh, the interpreter was not that great to begin with. But here's three of them shouting all of a sudden. They're cussing at me in English, shouting out, kill him, kill him. I was told to kneel on the floor, pick up the chair that I was just sitting in, and hold it over my head. As I did that, they kept shouting and hollering at me. Why did you intrude into our waters? Why was your ship in our waters? And I'd say, we weren't in your waters. We were in international waters. You lie. Kill him. Kill him. Finally, after a period of time, I couldn't hold the chair up there straight anymore. I started lowering it. As I did, why, the guard would come up behind me. He'd kick me under the arm, kick me in the ribs. The one officer that was a senior officer, he got up from behind the desk. He picked up his belt. He wrapped it around his hand. And the buckle was hanging about this far from his fist. And he swung that at me. It hit me right alongside the head. And I felt a pop. I saw stars. I saw a flash. I expected to see my brains running down my shirt. It didn't break the skin, but it was sure startling. And he's standing right there in front of me, and I'm holding this chair and my instinct was to come forward. But something else is don't do that. You're not going to win. The guard kept coming up behind me and kicking and kicking and kicking every time I lowered the chair. And I'm thinking, where does this go? How long can I take this? So I decided I would fall to the floor and act like I passed out. I laid there, and I knew that they wanted me to confess to a lie. I knew that I had information that they could not learn. And what was my breaking point? 
I had never been to any kind of formal military training to anticipate something like this. Finally, through the whole thing, the one officer was shouting, you intruded into our territorial waters and the territorial waters of the Soviet Union. And I'm laying on the floor thinking, didn't he just tell me we were two places at once? Hmm. Through all this, and I was still being kicked, and kicked in the back, kicked in the head, kicked in the neck, I decided that I would write a confession to that. They stopped and said, you must wait here and put me behind the desk. And I remember sitting behind the desk, like, where am I going? I don't even know where I'm at. They came back with blank paper and pencils, two pencils that were just sharpened. They told me, you must write. Well, this was a tough situation to be in. I see a lot of military men around here, and if I ask you, what are the six articles of the Code of Conduct? You probably can't name them all. I can't. But you are going to remember the one that shows the guy crushing a pen against the paper, saying, I will only give my name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. And wow, here you are in a position where they're asking a lot more than that. What do I do? How do I handle this? I'm in a room all by myself. Nobody, nobody to say, what do you think I ought to do? What should we do? Nobody there. I never felt so alone in all my life. I figured, well, if I take the pencils and I hold them up to my heart and I fall over just right, they'll puncture my heart and that'll be it. Problem solved. Partially. How do I get to my heart? There's ribs there. What if I miss? Then what happens? Finally, I went back and I remembered what I'd learned in church and Sunday school. I remembered everything that I had heard. I, I, was, I accepted Christ as my Savior at about age 14, as best as I can remember and figure. I wasn't walking all that closely with God, but I did cry out to Him. And I said, Lord, if you're real, if you're there, help me. Please, Lord, help me. And you know, at that very moment, I heard something that if I ask people here, if God, if you were, if I were to ask you what God sounded like in your mind, if he were to speak, what would you say? Many people would say, oh, I remember the Ten Commandments when, well, Charlton Hester, or actually Moses. He was standing in front of the mountain, and the mountain started vibrating and rumbling, and there was this deep, powerful, booming voice, and God spoke to Moses. Well, you know, I heard the exact same thing. Now, I've been giving this speech, and I've gone out sharing my testimony for many, many years, almost 40 years now. And I pray, always asking God, if I'm going to say something, it has to be the truth. I cannot make something up to glorify me. That's not why I'm here. I got to tell the truth. And he has never prevented me from telling this story the way I'm telling it now. But I heard God speaking to me, and it wasn't through my ears. It was in my mind. And I heard this deep, powerful, booming voice, just like we picture in the movie. And the voice didn't say much. All the voice said was, Trust me. 
trust me. Everything is going to be all right. Trust me. And that was it. And at that very moment, I had a feeling that started at the top of my head and just started working its way all the way through my entire body. I could just feel like I was being blanketed. And this feeling just kept going down through my body till finally it reached my feet. And I felt a warmth through my entire body, and I knew that God was there with me, protecting me. I was at peace. I've never heard God speak to me in that way since. I've heard God speak to me in many ways through music, through this morning, through this beautiful cantata we heard here today. I've heard God speak to me through messages, through music, through his word, through prayers, through many different forms. But I've never heard him speak to me the way he did that day. I wrote a confession admitting that we were in the Soviet Union waters and the Soviet or the national or North Korean waters as well. Most of the confession that I wrote was nonsense. But they were happy with it. And I wrote some things in there that were pretty ridiculous. Even though I was unable to use my arm properly, it had been worked over pretty good and uh, I received many kicks there, and uh, my arm sw- was swollen. And for two weeks later, it just basically hung there, black and blue, from my shoulder to my wrist. And everybody had to help me on and off with my clothing. But I was able to write a confession that they accepted. And everybody went through that. It's, it's kind of hard to sit there in that situation to hear people all around you being beaten. Furniture being destroyed, much of it over the backs of your fellow crew members. But through our entire captivity, it was not an easy time. We, we had difficult times. Uh, they asked us a lot of things. And uh, fortunately, I, I feel blessed because I was able to kind of divert them. Every time they start asking me questions, I learned quickly that I could divert them from something well, do you know anything about this? No, I don't know anything about that. But boy, I can tell you everything you need to know about that. This was classified. That was not. That worked. We knew that everything that they were doing, everything that they were uh, taking pictures of and stuff like that, was they were using us as propaganda to show to the outside world to embarrass the United States. But as sailors, we found out quickly that there was a gesture we could use. And this gesture was used in every photograph that was taken. We saw it in a movie and realized that they didn't know what it meant. Now, I'm not going to illustrate it. I'll let you figure it out. (laughs) But we used this, and sure enough, they figured it out. We told them it was a Hawaiian good luck sign. That didn't work. It was, we were doing good with it up until a point. We were able to write some letters home, and in the letters we included some photographs, and the one uh, gentleman included a group photograph of all the people in his room. There were eight men in his room, and half of them were displaying this gesture, and people were saying that, oh, they're spelling out help. And somebody says, no, 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 they're sailors. They're giving you a sign of, you know. That was in Time International. The North Koreans had a copy of it, so they found out what we were up to. 
Two weeks before we got released on December 23rd, 1968, began what we called Hell Week. They didn't like that they had been foiled. So we paid for it, a week of intense beatings. Now here you are in a situation, you've been there for almost 11 months, two weeks before Christmas, it's cold outside, and there you are back to square one. The beatings are just as bad as they were the day they captured us. And finally, after the week was up, just out of the clear blue, they stopped. They took the guys that were injured, black and blue, uh, or black eyes and bruises on their face, tried to patch it up. Something was going on. Something was changing dramatically, 180 degrees. And what it was was the United States had negotiations with North Korea, and they said that they would sign a confession to admit the United States or the Pueblo intruded into their territorial waters, apologized for it, and assured that it wouldn't happen again. They were signing a confession, a lie, a false confession drafted by the North Koreans. But the deal was that the general that was going to sign this could stand up before the whole world and say, I am signing this. This is not going to change the truth. My signature on this document does not alter the facts. I sign this to free the crew and only to free the crew. He signed it, and the next day we came home. We crossed the bridge of no return after 335 days, exactly 11 months, in the hands of the North Koreans. We flew home to San Diego, and we arrived there on December 24, 1968, to a welcoming committee of family, friends. Governor and Mrs. Reagan were there, military bands, all kinds of dignitaries. After that, we were debriefed about our whole experience, went through a court of inquiry to find out what happened, Commander Booker and many of the officers were recommended that they be court-martialed, but the Secretary of the Navy bowed to public opinion, said they have been through enough. Let's leave it go with that. Many re-enlisted and uh, went, into, or went on to retirement. I got out of the Navy in January of 1973, and I joined the Pennsylvania National Guard and spent 12 years there. That's why if you saw me standing over here, uh, for the Army and the Navy. I wasn't both. I'm not losing it. <laughs> I'm officially retired U.S. Army. The biggest transition from Navy to Army was I was going from a petty officer first class to a staff sergeant. You know how hard it is to learn how to spell sergeant? <laughs> I did. What's the relevance of the Pueblo event today, 42 years later? What have I learned? What, what do I see? What's the difference for me? Well, for me, I thought about this many, many times over the years. And it's a journey of faith. We all know the day that we were born. We know where we're at today. That's our timeline. As I look back over that timeline, I can see a lot of things in my life that have happened. But you know, the one thing that's always been consistent, the one thing that's always been steady, and it's always been there is God's faithfulness to me. 
if there's been any time that that line zigzagged, it was me moving, not him. So today, as I stand here and turn around and look the other way, I'm looking out. I don't know how far the timeline goes out. I hope it goes out quite a ways, but I don't know that. There's no guarantee. So what do I learn from that end of it up to now and then from here forward? God's been faithful. He's always been there. As I move forward, I need to continue to trust him. The crew had faith. Many of us did. We remembered things and put together what later was called the Pueblo Bible. Uh, We tried to remember whatever we could from the Bible to sustain us, to help us through. I took my Bible with me from the ship, but they discovered it and took it off me. But we had things like the Ten Commandments that we relied on. The 23rd Psalm, Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Some of the other verses we know, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. John 3.16, everybody knows that. For also, and then it comes on, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there shall I be also. And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Even though our lives in North Korea were threatened almost daily for 11 months, I had peace. Remember, God told me to trust him, and I did. Many of the crew members didn't believe. They weren't believers, and a lot of people say, well, they made it through. They came home, they crossed the bridge the same day you did. Well, yes, that's true. But I had peace. I figured I was either going to go to heaven from North Korea or somewhere else. Obviously, it's going to be somewhere else. But one good thing, and I thank the Lord for this, I have had no lingering effects at all. None. Forty-two years later, they tell me I'm normal. That depends who you talk to. (laughs) But today I come out and I speak about this freely, and I do this. Maybe to be an encouragement to others. I know that chances of you having a Pueblo in your life are slim to nil. It's still in North Korea. It's never been returned to us. But I know you're going to have something in your life that's going to be just as equal in devastation. Even as I stand here before you, I was visiting in... My uh, son and his wife, my daughter are with me today. We visited my sister yesterday, who only a few weeks ago found out she had incurable cancer. She's got weeks to live. If that, probably days. And the piece that I learned from her was that, Margaret, where's your walk with the Lord? Where's your relationship with Christ? She'd never been there before. But recently, that's all changed. She's ready to die. She's ready to go to heaven to see my mom and dad, or our mom and dad. All those who have gone on before us. I remember vividly the day the ship was captured when we were inside the spaces, and I could hear the bullets bouncing off the side of the ship. And I asked myself the question, was I ready to die? 
because I thought that was the day that it could happen. My answer was, I'm not sure. And then I kind of scolded myself, says, Frank, you ought to know better. You've been going through church all your life. You ought to know better. You need to be ready. I have a question today to ask you. I'm feeling compelled to talk to people. We look around us today and our world has changed. Today we are engaged in the challenge just to remain a nation under God. There's people out there that want to say, in God we trust. Take it off our money. We can't use that. We can't do anything. There are a lot of things that we're being challenged about. But I'm going to ask you today, if today were the day that you were to die, where would you spend eternity? I'm reading a Bible that tells me there's two places, heaven or hell. One's good, one's bad. We teach a fifth grade Sunday school, my wife and I. And I pose this question to the kids. And they all agreed, oh, heaven, it's good. Hell's not, not good. I said, well, where do you want to go? So I'm going to give you a challenge today to think about if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? For me, as a boy of 14, I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Now, I've not always walked as closely as I should have with him, but today I do. I think it's important for each and every one of us to search our hearts. Where are you going? I don't know if you ever made that decision to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, but I would encourage you, if you have not, speak to one of the pastors here. This is a church that loves the Lord and wants to see people go to heaven. Listen to WJCS. I work there. (laughs) But that's not the only reason. I'm the only guy that works there, but our WJCS, the letters stand for Worship Jesus Christ, our Savior. You'll receive encouraging word. You'll hear a message of salvation. It's there to help you in your walk with Jesus. As I close today, I remember, or I just want you to remember that in your life, whatever you may be going through, just as maybe you've not seen it as clearly and as vividly as I have, but in your life, God is faithful. As you go from here forward, he's going to remain just as faithful. God is love. Jesus never fails. These are two plaques that I had as a boy that meant so much to me in North Korea because I knew that God loved me and Jesus would not fail me. Today, I ask you to just trust the Lord. Again, thank you for allowing me to be here. I hope that I've encouraged you in some way. God bless.